The first time you meet Rob Simpson, the first thing you think is, fuck, this guy's tall. The second thought to cross your mind is, wow, his presence is refreshing. He is a man who takes his job as a, as a sports reporter seriously, but doesn't need to make a show of how seriously he takes himself. That is often rare in our industry. Simpson is currently the co-host of Stella and Simmer, the radio show on Sirius XM. His past work includes, but is not limited to, working as a TV weatherman in Hawaii, working for the NBC at the Torino Olympics. He was a skydiver in Ohio. That was also part of a TV gig. He worked for Accessible Media and uh, climbed Mount Kilimanjaro during his time with the NHL Network. So beyond that, Simpson has a writing background, and that's why he's here today. Um, Past work has included uh, three books, uh, The Not-So-Tall Tales from Ray Scampanello's Four Decades in the NHL. That was in 2006. Black and Gold, Four Decades of the Boston Bruins and Photographs, 2008 and 2010. And The Winged Wheel, A Half Century of the Detroit Red Wings and Photographs. And now, a fourth. And that's why we're, he's here today, of course. No Heavy list Lifting was released last month. And Nate, uh, we both read this book. And uh, what were your thoughts? Yeah, going in, Neil, I, I wasn't really sure uh, what to expect. I mean, I, not being a huge, you know, hockey guy, I didn't, I didn't, I only sort of knew the rough outline of uh, Rob's sort of career paths but this was a book that it kind of really grew on me especially after i went back and reread a few of the stories i mean it's kind of loose and episodic it's almost a little bit like a richard linkletter movie that that way i mean just a guy who i mean dedicated to just doing doing the job and doing it right and rob was very interestingly i noticed off the top he's like this is not a memoir this is not you know rob simpson's journey this is not rob simpson's uh, you know, advice, it's not some sort of advice advice book, I, but I really thought it was a lot closer to what it's like to work in the uh, media industry than it than it is for you know the people who you usually see with a book on on the shelf, like you know your your Ron McLeans or your Rachel Maddows or your Keith Olbermans. You know the people right. who are, are right at the top of the food chain. This is a little bit more closer to the reality, and there's obviously a lot of great stories and. Uh, you know, I, I think I think a lot of character comes shining through, even though, like I say, Rob's saying, this isn't about me. These are just things I was involved in. But yeah, I really, it really sort of started to grow on me after a few. I think you, it's the same with me. And I think you really hit the nail on the head. This is actually a guy that I think your 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 everyday reporter can kind of relate to the guy that's bounced around the guy that's been in, in scrums uh, consistently. And you're absolutely right. Um, that's what I took away from it too, and there was a lot of relatable experience uh, in sports media. I'm sure for you and for myself as well. So, without further ado, we're going to welcome in Rob Simpson to talk about no heavy lifting. I'm Neil Acharya, and I'm Nate Sager, and this is Sports Lit. Uh, episode four of season two, Nate, uh, as we talked off the top, very happy to have Simmer, Rob Simpson here from Sirius Satellite Radio and a whole host of other sports media professions, which is discussed in his book, No Heavy Lifting, which came out last month, um, published by ECW Press. So Rob, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Wait till you see the sequel. <laughs> 
It's well, a, I'm sure you have. There's, there's got to be more stories. It's a good four or five years off, but uh, there's a lot of funky stories. You're building up the material. Oh, yeah. No, I've got it already. It's just, uh, you know, didn't have time to use it. Um, well, I'll get right into it. Um, we talked about your background in sports media, and uh, I think, you, are you in your fifth decade right now of, of uh, covering, if you count 1979? Yeah, it's kind of wacky. My Actually, my first game would have been, uh, I, I just discovered this not that long ago and kind of finalizing this book, was January 13th, 1980. So technically... Oh, okay, so um, four decades. It was uh, Detroit Pistons hosting the Chicago Bulls, led by head coach Jerry Sloan. That was my first assignment. Um, and it was really strange, what I found out recently, is the night before is when I was with my dad and my oldest brother at Gordy Howe and his son's game in Detroit against the Red Wings. This was three weeks before the famous All-Star game. He yes. came back to play an actual regular season game with the Whalers. Oh, okay. <laughs> and we went to that game one night and then did the, I covered the Pistons game the night, so the next night. So it was a pretty crazy weekend. At the Olympia? No, that would have been Joe Losarina in its first season. It was oh. probably a month old. When it was brand spanking new. Um <laughs> That ties right into the first question. So you started your first pro gig in high school. Um, the Pistons won 16 games that season. Yeah. Uh, I think it might have been their worst season ever. Probably. Um, how have you seen sports coverage change? Um, and before I, I, I let you get into that, I mean, you were in high school and you got accreditation. I mean, I don't know if that could happen now. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the one thing that's pretty bizarre. There was this guy, Bill Kreifeldt who um, was the PR director for the Pistons, and they were so bad, 16 and 66. Apath apathy does not describe it. Um, the fans didn't show up. The media could care less. Uh, the Tigers at that time were actually pretty good. Um, Red Wings, not yet. Uh, Lions, I don't remember. Maybe getting good. But anyway, they played at the Pontiac Silverdome. It was an NBA team playing in a football stadium. And it was awful, and um, not many people really cared. So one of the kids that I went to high school with, we had a high school radio station. And at that time, I think there were maybe three in the entire state of Michigan. Um, he asked the guy, he asked Bill Kreifelt, and Bill's like, yeah. He goes, what a great opportunity it would be and learning experience, blah, blah, blah. So he, uh, he issued us passes, not all the time, but 90% of the time right? And, and uh, for games. And then that led to us getting paid under the table to get sound for professional stations. Like, well, you're there. We'll give you 20 bucks. Just feed us post game. And we we're like, okay. So a great break, and probably the, the as you said, um, the, the the PR manager for the Pistons probably helped that along by by being willing to take a chance. But um, I mean, I I don't know. In my mind, I mean, obviously we're in Toronto. I just I I have a I found it really interesting, almost pure in a way that somebody at a high school could cover a professional team. Yeah, and there were actually three of us. There were three kids that did it. Um, it was an amazing time and opportunity that, you, yeah, like you pointed out, Neil, it's, it's just, I couldn't imagine it ever happened again in this day and age. And what's really cool about Bill Kreifelt, though, he left the Pistons, he ended up working for the Utah Jazz, and I just chatted with a buddy of mine out in Idaho who's been a sports editor for a long time in, in Idaho. Uh, he said Bill Kreitfeld did the exact same thing for him literally three years later with the Utah Jazz, gave him his first crack at it, and that's what started him in the business. And I didn't know that, and I've known the guy for a long time, and I thought that was cool. Have you seen, um, from a, an accreditation standpoint, 
a difference in 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 who you would see at games uh covering games from back then to now well now the change is it was always newspaper guys then hardcore newspaper guys columnists beat writers tv some radio the internet didn't exist right now it's um heavy on the electronic newspapers are going away like look at even the last three years guys we'd see in the press box neil james myrtle used to work for the globe mail now he right. works for the athletic right um I, you could probably what list off six guys yeah, that are in the press box on a regular basis that used to write for a piece of paper now they write for an electronic medium that's the biggest difference um one follow-up on that before i get i know nate's itching to get a crack in here but i mean it was a tough year, the 79-80 season. Um, as we talked about, the Pistons probably had their worst year ever. But it was also the start of something. I mean, basketball was kind of in the shadows a little bit in the 70s. Um, me and Nate talked about one of the finals, I believe, was tape delayed. They didn't even show one of the NBA finals till after it was played. I mean, that's unfathomable now for any sport. But that was the year the three-point line was uh, instituted. Yep. And Isaiah, not Isaiah, sorry, Magic and Bird entered yep. the league. Did you feel at all um, that the league was changing? Uh, there was like there was something different happening? Or was that is that just revisionist? No, I was just a kid, but you could sense it because I was obviously grew up in Michigan. So at Michigan State and Magic won the national championship in, 90, in 79 against Bird. Mm. So that rivalry began. And then the three, the third year that we were covering the team, our senior year in high school, Isaiah had been drafted. So we got to kind of start to see that go. And we followed it religiously, even though we were teenagers. Like I know Mark Aguirre went number one to Dallas, and then Zeke went number two to Detroit. And then the whole bird magic thing. You, yeah, you could sense it. The game was really picking up. Yeah, of course, there's a great book about, that. I think, that 79 Michigan State, uh, When March Went Mad by Seth Davis, I think. Is the oh, one. cool, yeah. Yeah, um, sorry to be nerding it up there. That's but right. uh, Rob, I just wondered, uh, there's, so many, this is, there's so many stories from across your career. What was one when you were like writing it down and you know shaping the story? One where you were just like, I can't believe I was like that brazen or that confident to do this. Uh, I, one thing I learned early on um, when covering the Pistons is this kid there was there's another one of the other high school radio stations in michigan was southfield which is another area outside detroit and we were covering a game and this kid was walking around got the same opportunity just this one kid from the southfield i think it was wshj i don't know how i remember that <laughs> can and you sing out the call letters he would, yeah we were wbfh he was w and he was walking around the press room the media room before the game like the cock of the walk it was just being like you know, he owned the place. So in other words, he took this opportunity. He, he looked as like, okay, I'm the cat's meow at this point because I'm 16 and I'm covering or 17, whatever he was. And I'm covering it where we were like, oh my God, like this is a crazy opportunity. So from an early stage, there was nothing really brazen uh, because I had a deep a heartfelt appreciation um, for what was going on. Um, there are some other things that take place later as you might have noticed in the book that were definitely brazen but uh, in the yes. <laughs> in the early going <laughs> pick one <laughs> there might have been dr drunk and brazen but um, as it relates to the broadcast uh, process uh, nothing too brazen until I covered a Super Bowl 
Oh, yeah. And we were drunk the entire week. <laughs> but that was on tape, and that was the whole idea. And that, that's what <laughs> yeah, I thought. That was a good one. But yeah, I, think, I just, when I was reading your Super Bowl chapter, I was like, yeah, yeah I always think that the whole thing, it's like, yeah, it's just, it's kind of an old trade show type thing. The, it, totally. The hip question is to ask, who's even playing? Yeah, oh, that totally. It was, And it was in New Orleans, so it was it was just absurd. And and that's what I think me and Nate liked most about the book, because there, there, there is this, this element of... Um, like, I thought of Seasons in Hell a little bit, Nate, a book you lent me. Remember Seasons in Hell? Yeah, my, Mike Shropshire, who covered the Texas Rangers during their early, early seasons in Arlington in mid-70s. And he was... Oh, boy. I think he told one story about one time he was hung over in Milwaukee, and it was a doubleheader, and it was bat day. And yeah. the old press box in County Stadium was suspended from a steel grandstand, so the kids were just like... <laughs> with the bats, well... He's nursing a huge hangover. Oh, that, boy. That, that's exactly it, though. There, there, there are these stories that, I mean, I think others would, would probably not want to tell, but it, you, you, you make it fun, right? I mean, you, you, it's, it's a, a little irreverent. It's definitely anecdotal. But you know what? You just reminded me of something brazen. Um, I tell the story later about getting a, a stick from P.J. Axelson at the Olympics yes. in 2006, which I don't do with anybody. I don't get autographs. I have no interest. They've always just treated them as other people to me, the athletes. You're a selfie guy. Yeah, I just you prefer that. No, I don't do anything around, <laughs> around anybody. But um, I was doing the PA announcing for the for the Texas Rangers at spring training in Charlotte, Florida. And I worked in Florida for a year, and I got the PA gig for spring training. And I did Nolan Ryan dating back to high school radio. Got into a d- debate on our little local sports talk show with my buddy about Nolan Ryan signing the million dollar contract and whether he was worth it. Now, when you look at the numbers, it's obscene. But um, and I always had a thing for Nolan. I loved him. Loved the high heat. Loved you know the no hitters. Loved everything about the guy. So he is uh, getting up there in age, and he's in the clubhouse in Port Charlotte, Florida, at spring training. And I actually snuck in because I was a cameraman, one man band. I was shooting my own stuff for the TV station there, and also doing the PA. And I snuck into the clubhouse and uh, walked into the dressing room or the clubhouse. He was the only one in there. And he, he even said, hey, you're not supposed to be in here. And I said, I know. And I said, I just wanted to, I said something about you're my favorite. And, you know, I've been arguing about you for years. And he signed a baseball for me in red felt ink. And it has since faded oh. basically to almost, it's still just barely discernible. You still have it. I still have it, but it's it's almost faded off. But it was a red, fine felt tip pen. And it was not a great idea because it didn't hold on to the baseball. But... That was pretty brazen, actually, going in to get Nolan Ryan's autograph, which is, you know, it was 30 years between autographs. Just briefly, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Br- Briefly, just tell me, tell us, uh, and especially our listeners that may not know you, uh, you know, a little bit about your background. We talked about you started in Detroit in high school, um, and, and, you know, really this book is about your travels and sports media and where you've landed and, and those stories, anecdotes. Tell, tell us a little bit about where you've been and, and that type of stuff. Well, the, the key mentality was uh you know doing the cool stuff and determining that this is what i wanted to do with my life in high school then going to college and basically becoming an amateur again and being on campus doing stuff right and then trying to become a professional again so my father actually had worked his arse off his entire life for general motors and died of cancer like as he was about to retire Mm -hmm. so that might have been part of my mindset like he was just turned 58 and he was a hard ass we weren't that close. He was just, our mentalities were different. Right. I was the youngest and uh, loved him, respected him, but we weren't at all alike. Right. But that concept of working your ass off for 
for your entire life and then dying before you got to really do anything right. always lodged in my head like you know what i'm not gonna wait i'm gonna start doing this now so i got the a tv gig a friend helped me land my first job in alabama market 186 everything's by market number because when you're in the business in tv you're trying to go from market 186 to market Size 100 market. to 30 yeah and then into the top 10 chicago new york and i started that process alabama florida for a year and then i got a gig in hawaii or offered a gig in hawaii and i was like okay do i keep doing this corporate media climb and try to get to number five as fast as possible or do i go hawaii and i'm like ping i'm going to hawaii <laughs> so that's what started it and then it's always been the road less traveled i was like i was never really interested in like okay i'm in this competition to get to market four i would rather experience life as i went and it wasn't always sports the whole way Nope. I was a news reporter, in, um, but I always worked it in. So when I was in Alabama, I did play-by-play -play for Alabama baseball uh, for a season. That was interesting. When I was in Florida, I did the PA announcing for spring training and covered as much high school football. And I used to get cr credentials. To dr I'd drive 10 hours to Tallahassee to go to, on the weekend to see Florida State because they were really good. Bobby Bowden, they were like okay. a top-ranked team. And then Hawaii, I transitioned from news to sports to actually news to weather. I was the weatherman in Hawaii for a year to uh, to sports. Um, some of, some of the networks you worked for then, um, you know, just throw out some of the names. Uh, well, initially it was weird. I always ended up working for CBS affiliates. So Bama was a CBS affiliate. Florida, same thing. Wink TV, by the way, W I N K. <laughs> yeah, that was. I used to drive around in the Wink mobile. Ooh, did they have the soda? No soda. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, competitive market, though. Um, Hoda Kotb, who's the Today Show host, worked in our newsroom at that time. Um, uh, Shepard Smith, who was, was an anchor on The Competitor, he's the Fox News guy. I mean, it was really weedage out. That was a very competitive market, Fort Myers at that time. Um, Hawaii was a CBS affiliate. And then, um, God, where did I go? I went back to the mainland and basically got a paid education doing 153 live games a year minor league baseball hockey tennis andy uh who's the who's the kid who's the american tennis player andy roddick. Uh, andy roddick andy roddick he was an 18 year old playing for the idaho sneakers and i did his games on tv for a year and mm. i actually that was like probably my next autograph after um nolan ryan i got andy roddick's which for whatever reason thinking the kid was going to be something special. And then after that, it was uh, Nesson, MSG, NHL Network, TSN, Sportsnet, whatever. Who'd ever have me? Um, and right <laughs> now it's... That's Sirius XM, right. NHL, with a little bit of TSN and Sportsnet sprinkled in. With former Maple Leafs GM. Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot Leafs TV for five years. <laughs> um, <laughs> insert uh, joke here. No, um, I was going to say... Um, one of my first tasks ever uh, when I became a full-time member of the media was um, working at this network based at, out of the TSN building or the CTV, CTV building, 9 Channel 9 Court. And I walked into work one day, I think one of my first shifts, and I said, what can I do? And they said, "Take, go upstairs, get this tape off the boss's desk, and we're going to ingest it. And then we're, it's going to run at 5.30. <laughs> and um, this, of course, was the NHL Network, and the tape was this really tall guy, Rob Simpson. Oh, wow. And 
you were doing a hit every day from a pretty unique location. I think it was the NHL shop or the store. Were you not at yeah. the store? I've, I've seemed to remember jerseys behind you. And, um, was I it be, with a woman co-host or was I on my I own? I think you were on your own. Okay. Um, and I, I know they did a lot of hits from the NHL. So networks. did you work with like Sasha Beck? Yes. Okay. Wow, Sasha Beck got a, a shout out on yeah, Sports the German. Podcast. <laughs> he's, he's, I think he's over there. He, he, he's, he is. He's working for the Olympics, yeah, I think. Or the, he, the, he used to ingest a lot of the stuff. Yeah, maybe he downloaded it to me. But So Rob <laughs> Simpson is, is actually one of my first memories of working uh, in sports media is, wow. is is your 530 hit coming from New York City. Yeah, so. we, yep. we used um, to do those little hits. And then I was really had a nice time working for one full playoff season with uh, Heidi Andrel. Yes, Heidi, who also... L.A. Kings. Uh, yes, with the Kings. I think she's from Michigan, too. She is from Michigan. You guys. She's out of commission now, though. She still double does some media stuff, but she's I think, has a child and is married and all that unfortunate stuff. Um. <laughs> I say that only jokingly because she was absolutely gorgeous and a wonderful girl. This is true. Um, I, I think she actually might have hosted a, an episode of uh, NHL on the Fly, too. Uh, she probably as, did. as did Deb Placey and uh, a, a bunch of uh, U.S. people they kind of brought in because uh, they wanted that presence yeah, here. Yeah, they had tryouts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> it really was NHL on the Fly. We had the same agent, actually, by accident, Heidi huh. and I in New York for a brief, brief time. How did you land an agent? Uh, I actually had an agent. Uh, I was summoned to New York by a group called NS Beanstalk that actually handled like Dan Rather and Jessica Savage and all this. And uh, when I was sports anchoring in Hawaii, and it just it kind of fell through for weird, like demographic slash political reasons that I'm not going to get into. So there's that, no politics in TV or oh, media. Oh, never. <laughs> so and I was just kind of uh, quietly going about my business at that point. It was way before I got mouthy. Um, so the Beanstalk experience was pretty wild, but it didn't it didn't happen. It was like a pipeline to ESPN, which I'm glad didn't work out because that would have meant working in Bristol for 20 years. For um, Disney. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> and then I've had, I think, two or three others. So um, one in Boston, then, and then uh, Sam Rosen, who's a buddy of mine from doing MSG stuff, hooked me up with uh, a recommendation with CAA. And that was, that was the Heidi thing. Touching on... And on being represented by an agent for a book, this is your fourth book. Yep. Uh, how did you have? How did that work? I was out? represented the first time, mm -hmm. and then after that, once you get the first one, they get <laughs> you ditch your agent, and you. Just, um, <laughs> I didn't really ditch him. It was like a one-off. He wasn't a book agent. He was right. a sports agent, and uh, I don't know how that worked out. So your first three books, we talked about that in our intro. Um, it was a, a, a two, was it two photo books, the Bruins and the uh, the Red Wings? Yeah, photo emphasis. Okay, which just makes it good. Yes. <laughs> Since I write at an eighth grade level, um, you know, the first one was all writing. It was Scampi, Ray Scapanello. Yes. I did a show about him for Leafs TV. I put a mic on him at Madison Square Garden, back to back games, one Devils, one Islanders. So I had the rivalry thing, and it was a great little half hour show. And that got me to thinking, I'm like, this guy has a book. I mean, this guy is a book. So I, I you know, humbly uh, asked him. He said, let me talk to Maureen, his wife. And uh, he basically uh, got back to me a week later and said, sure, yeah, let's let's do it. And what a wonderful guy and a wonderful relationship. He, I was sitting with his family at the Hall of Fame induction and all that. I was going to say, so it must have been right at the end of his career when you did this? It was his last season. So I had other officials and coaches, head coaches, that normally don't talk about anything. Um, 
commenting on how much they love Scampi. So that was that worked out pretty good. Scampanello, of course, uh, famous for being in the hallway during the Koharski. Yeah, uh, the have donut. another donut. To... Thirty years ago. <laughs> it's um, still, that, that, that's ahead, one Nate. thing that still blows my mind about like the NHL from our childhood was like the yellow jersey games. Like, how how did this happen? By I the just, way, one thing that's forgotten about that series: unbelievable series. Yeah, they went oh, seven yeah. games, and it was just yeah. entertaining as hell. Like yeah. the Boston, New Jersey. That was a, a fantastic series. It really was. No, um, go ahead. Now, when I think of sort of like, I actually kind of think it was interesting, Rob, you mentioned sort of your relationship with your dad. I was sort of reading this. This is a good Father's Day book. This is a good book to give to dad, and, you know, you'll pick it up because it's episodic. Yep. But I was sort of wondering, uh, just in terms of when I see or see guys who are, you know, people who are in uh, sort of an, I guess, uh, electronic media or broadcast media, that's the, yep. that's the term. Selling a book, usually it's oftentimes it's like people who are like, you're seeing all the time. You know, Ron McLean's got a book, James right, Duffy right. has a book. So, Celebrity so books. On. Sort of, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what's for, for you, what's, what's, how, what's the challenge for you in, in promoting and saying, hey, I've got a great story here too and a, and a, yeah. and a really good uh, concept. like. How do yeah. you promote that? It's an uphill battle that way because I'm not a celebrity. So, like, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah I was trying to put our, our, our pal negative. likes James Duthie. He's a you know buddy, and um, you know Bob McKenzie. Like the guys become gigantic when those guys pump out a book. It's just it's automatic. It's like hey, here's my book, and in your million you know Twitter followers go okay. Well, half of us will go buy your book. Um, this is more based on uh, you know utilizing those relationships. Because I kind of know all the same people they do. I'm just less famous in doing it. You know what I mean? Like, because the hockey community is only so big, the media community is only so big, and I've worked a lot of places. They they talk yeah. about. Uh, I mean, we had Damon Fairless on last uh, episode. Uh, totally different topic, obviously. And the authors always say the same thing. I'm I'm not going to make any money off this. Right. So, a why did you? Um, I guess what was the uh, the genesis for this particular book? Because it seems a little less about you as opposed to the other three books. And B, I mean, this must be a labor of love because I mean, unless you're making a ton of money and you want to reveal that <laughs> right now. No, actually, um, there I, I set goals for it. Okay. Like, you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna be killing it and, and making a living off of it. But I hope I hope to make a little bit of money off of it um, and and set a goal for where I what I would like to uh, accomplish in terms of selling it and getting the word out there to kind of set up whatever next book I might come out with that's more important. Um, so yeah, in terms of sheer numbers or anything, I haven't really thought about it or really care that much as long as it does well enough for my publisher and kind of reaches my my basic goals. Um, that's kind of what it's all about. Yeah, it, it, that's the case for 90% of authors. It's, it's not a... Yeah, and publishers. It's not a real money generating business yeah but how important is it just as like you say right because you there's a consistent message on i just remember hearing steve russian talk uh recently on a podcast with jeff perlman and he's like you know i can't worry about you know what the guy reading this in the dentist's office in kansas city is going to think two months from now i just have to like get it out there how, yeah. how resonant how much does that resonate with you it definitely resonates because um part of it's just the entertainment factor you want to entertain people and make them smile and also there's other messages there's a message about gambling in here and how you should avoid it so that's a that's a subtopic that i'll probably get into kind of a speech circuit about um there's a whole slew of, I, I'm referring to this now as a how-to book, which is a good <laughs> marketing angle because it's basically how to skydive, how to run a marathon, how to gamble away some serious cash, how to piss off a U.S. senator. Like that's the approach that way uh, I'm taking. But also, I wrote the two chapters about being a kid covering the NBA probably 
30 years ago. Okay. So they've just been sitting there. I really yeah. enjoy. I really enjoyed that. That that was the. I mean, I think that it really spoke to guys like me and Nate that have actually done the the job. I mean, like it, it would. Uh, I think it'd be eye opening to those that don't cover sports or right. co- completely green to it. But for guys like us, like tripping over a player or oh, yeah. your your mic doesn't work or 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 even fast forward to how hard it is to kind of get people to want to do a streeter. Right. You know, like those those things were. I well, I hate streeters. I think uh, yeah. I hate streeters. <laughs> but like I, I, those are the, and referring to man on the street where you just have to go up to random people. Yeah. Like I loved it when I was drunk covering the Super Bowl on tape, <laughs> but I hated it when anytime I was doing news and they'd say, "Go ask, uh, ask them what they think about the city council's decision." I'd be like, "Oh, are you serious right now?" Like, there's also a, like the dynamic of of a of a sports scrum is I found so interesting and I learned on the fly doing the Leaf stuff like. Yep. The TV guys are looking just for a soundbite. The print guys wait and get a more substantial quote. Like when you're first doing that, you don't you don't always know that, right? Yep. So it's a, that stuff. Um, a lot of people know. force questions. They're new. They just feel they have to ask a question. Like I don't, unless I have a question, I yeah. don't ask a question. I've learned right. that a long time ago. You just listen and learn. And I usually pull, I'll usually go, hey, and I'll pull the coach over right. after it's all said and just chat in the hallway for a half an hour, right? Right. Um the um the what was the what was i about to say um i will think about it in a second i just lost my train of thought but it, it, <laughs> Sorry, was, it had something to do with scrums and um yeah there's, just like the, there's a dynamic to it yeah i know what i was gonna there's say there's nhl was, media back insider crap behind the scenes in the book there's no question about yes that. And, and and i was gonna say at the leaf scrums i always remembered like, as i got more comfortable i always realized you let paul hendrick ask the first question so the guy loosens up because it's always going to be it's yeah. never going to be a question like that's going to be embarrassing to the guy or, right. or, or tough on him. Right. And then it loosens up. Some of the more veteran guys can ask a question, and then you kind of jump in. But uh, Here, Here's what some teams, I don't know if they still do this, but it used to be a bit of a nightmare because people would step on you anyway. Ranger, I did this with a few games of the Rangers, is you would be live. They'd throw down, and you were supposed to ask the thir- first three or four questions because you're live. They're taking right. the live coach's right. conversation. And then everybody would jump in, but the people that didn't know that would just start asking questions, and it would just be like you're like, right, you know, it's a bad idea. Uh, a mic, another mic flash comes just in a on bad your one on one. The whole thing's a bad. Idea. You got to separate everything out. So. Yeah, it's all about content. Uh, now you did hit on some of the sort of the serious. You sort of touched on some of the serious topics you get into. Uh, you, there's a really, per, I think, one of the more personal chapters is probably the the, the chapter on gambling. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really opened my mind to you know the presence of things that I think of within my lifetime have just become normalized, like you know, you know, going on Bodog to put it on a bed or you totally know, proline. Like where where was the motivation to sort of get into that and just lay that out there thinking i think this is because you sort of take a stance that this is kind of morally and wrong for the government to be doing stuff like that yeah i'm not crazy about the fact that it's we're inundated with it um given the fact that i know a lot of people that have problems with it right i'm over it my happy ending was the fact that i was just got fed up and said okay i'm done and never and walked away and never dealt with it which was pretty amazing because as a compulsive person that way or a, a compulsive gambler, an addictive gambler, they always are trying to get, the, they want to get their money back. There's always the get get it back, get it back, got to compete, got to get it back for whatever reason. And eventually, now imagine if I hadn't just walked away from it, that means I'd still be probably be trying to get it back today, you know, mm-hmm. 10 or 12 years later, where, and, and a lot of people aren't that fortunate. They end up, keep, they keep losing, they keep losing, you know, because odds are you're not going to win. 
whether it's a little or a lot, you know, odds are you're not going to win. And you tend to gamble more and more and more. So I started basically just being around guys like me, ex-jockey type, jock types who are really into sports and covering every day. And it just starts harmlessly enough and then it grows and you just bet more and more and more over the course of time. Well, there's a high to it, right? I bet on the Kentucky Derby yesterday, and there's a, right. it, it's, it's totally. no different it's, it's from adrenaline. smoking a cigarette. or right. Adrenaline drink. junkies. Um, Comp- competition and adrenaline. And you said in, in the book uh, uh, roughly ten grand a year over 10 years? Yeah, but not, not like a straight, right. like it'd be like six one year and 14 the next and, you know, that way. But I, I it got to a point where it was like 80-something. I was thinking in my head, I go, now if I'm putting the, doing the math here, you know, and then I eventually got just over about 100, 100 plus, And I was like, okay, this is, I was still going, but I was starting to win. And then didn't get paid, and I quit. That's right, yes. That, and I found it very interesting and a cool note you put in that, you know, working in sports media, your salary was fluctuating all the time during yeah. that time too, right? So, right. Um, so it was a strain at times where other times it was, well, it sucked. It sucked either way. It was, was horrible. Give was away there, your money. Was there a particular uh, game that you remember that was your last game that you did? Or was it just that incident with your bookie taking Just your... the bookie not paying me. I probably I hit like on a four or five NHL games on a parlay and, and then did it again two nights later and then did it again two nights later. The guy owed me like eight grand and he wasn't going to pay me. And that was it. How did watching sports as a fan, not coverage, but as a fan, uh, change after that for you? Uh, basically stopped watching college football and NFL that didn't matter. And really, NFL, none of it matters at this point. So stop watching. Like, I watch the sports I cover, but the game, the sports I gambled on, I haven't watched in 10 years. That's impressive. I'm actually blown away. Like, like I used to watch, like, I was one of the guys, like many that you probably know, loved the fact that there was a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday available. And that's why they do it, because they know they're going to get eyeballs from the couple billion dollar illegal gambling industry. So I would watch games every night, college football, Memphis State against, you know, Mississippi State, because there was a chance to bet. So I haven't watched any of that crap for 10 years, 12 years. I can still remember um, my roommate 10 years ago. um, I'd come home, you know, out from a a night on the town and he'd be, you know, still up. What are you doing? Oh, I'm I'm betting on the South Korean domestic men's (laughs) basketball league. I'm like, it'd be like five o'clock in the morning. I don't know what time it was in Seoul, but he would be all over this. Well, the West Coast games too. You get San Diego State again, you know, get these whack games, Western Athletic Conference. You get, you know, BYU against San Diego State. And then you bet the late games because you felt you know you knew something there. It was just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So just to throw in, like, uh, there's one one site. I'm not going to give them a free plug, but they give odds on the Ontario Hockey League and the Western Hockey League. And I've just got to be like, yeah, I've covered this, but I, I can't. It's not man. a good, it's it's not ju- a good thing. And then I remember, well, these are 17-year-olds playing. You can't pr- predict no. anything they're going to do. And you also <laughs> you have to concern yourself. It becomes big enough about the kids getting paid. I mean... This is a whole different story, and it's not in my book. But there are stories about NFL fix over the years, like two decades worth of former quarterback who came out. And, of course, they hush this all up. There's the, the Duke-UNLV game, which, my you know, FBA, FBI ties. A friend of mine who's in the business, he's like, oh, totally. Stacey Ogman threw the game. Like, Duke's win over UNLV was a complete and utter fix. I mean, you can go through all sorts. But you're not allowed. They don't want you to know. They don't want that to come out. Right. 
because you know the NCAA is ugh, whatever. <laughs> so anyway, that's a whole different story. But yeah, I mean, it's the fact that it's now part of our government fundraising is is insane. Just to tie in another book reference too, there's a book by Declan Hill called The Fix, uh, which on the cover says you'll never watch sports the same way again. Yeah. And I, when I saw that, I'm like, I don't even want to read this book because I think that, you know, <laughs> when I read it and I actually, especially certain uh, soccer matches and stuff, I don't, I do not watch them in the no. same way. Uh, in there's fact, NBA games over the years too. You just be like, how did that guy miss the layup? Like the line is six. You know, he's they're up five, and he's by himself under the basket, and he's six ten, and he misses like a, yeah. a layup, and and you're like, that was really weird. Like, there's just weird. Well, I think Jonas Valanciunas is actually seven feet, but yeah, well, that's that's another different story. Um, sorry, well, I covered the Canadian Soccer League uh, one year, and I remember covering it and and trying to as a reporter trying to get a beat on okay, this team's good, this team's not, and kind of work it into whatever you're talking about on air. And it just nothing made sense in that league that year. I don't know what year it was, 2010 maybe. And I remember after, if you remember, I think CBC did a report. That oh yeah, it yeah. was people were making huge bets on this overseas, right? And it the, nothing made sense in that league, um, right? And uh, if you and if you got some dude who's overseas in Monaco, he's he's making a bet for fifty grand on a freaking game somewhere else. What's it going to cost if he gives a, pl- a, a yeah. halfback five grand? And I don't even drop I don't the know, drop the ball or. Do the, whatever sport you're talking about. Do this, do that. Wow. He's like, sure, that sounds good. I'll take the five grand. And I'm not sure if anyone on uh, Brantford FC is making more than $50 for that game. You know right. what I mean? They're getting yeah. gas money, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if they're uh, gambling on that, we get severe problems. That's, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, Nate, do you want to uh, continue? Or? Yeah, so, something else you really get sort of get into the ethic, ethics and uh, morals of is, I guess, the NHL and, and head traumas after after you're knowing Steve, the late Steve Montador and uh, what yeah you, what's your sort of uh, sort of stance on how they can I guess because you sort of say well class I think you sort of talked about the class action suit and sort of some mixed feelings about that yeah. but you also say there's a better way I think I'm I'm kind of more into the organic like I I've mouthed off about the league even when I worked at the league about things I disagreed with but as it relates to this the lawsuits I think it's a bunk I think it's you know it's a money grab a lot of these guys you know they're part of this class action thing um, they saw the NFL players do it and it's a chance to make some money because their careers end, ended early um, I'm I'm not on the in the Ken Dryden camp. And obviously, if you watch the, the Stanley Cup playoffs this year, the league isn't either, and neither are the fans, and neither are the players, and neither are the coaches and general managers. It's a violent game played by mostly violent people, full of testosterone and anger. It's a physical game. So my point is, you know, to try to click your fingers and change this or to sue your way into, you know, making a windfall out of, things that have happened in a sport that hasn't changed in 100 years, it's ridiculous. So if you want it to change, it has to take place organically, and it's going to take a generation or two to become the Swedish Elite League. Okay, It's not <laughs> going to happen because there's a lawsuit or because we suddenly decide, oh, we got to protect our hockey players. Well, we don't have to protect our hockey players. If they don't want to play hockey, they don't have to play hockey. If your parents don't want you to play hockey, then that's a decision they make, and off you go. Go go do something else. Uh, yeah, that's my that's the way I look at it. Like I'm not going to ruin the sport because there's 
pacifists slash people that have ever put on a pair of skates saying, oh, we have to protect Johnny from himself. Well, guess what? No, we don't. So you now, take... He, he, can do a lot, he can do a lot more dangerous job that pays a lot less. Yeah. Now, what if the market sort of... I mean, some, I always think sometimes the, the big lesson of the digital age is the market changes the product. What if people... There's that societal change. People are like, oh, I don't feel yeah, like I want to watch this. There's, there's MMA. But so boxing... There, there's your societal... <laughs> boxing's died, but that, but that was so corrupt and fixed. Mm-hmm. Who, I don't know what MMA is like in that regard. But, <laughs> but you know, unless they're lying to us, the league's uh, beating its previous revenue on an annual basis. So people aren't running away from it because... They're running into each other. In fact, all the non-traditional markets, when I did the Leafs TV show and traveled around the non-traditional markets a lot, it was following former Leafs and Hall of Famers and all these wacky places in the U.S., uh, those fans went to games for fights, period. South Carolina Stingrays or or whatever, anywhere, Laredo, anywhere. To, they went for the fights. That's why the Western <laughs> Pro League was a goon sh- gong show. Central League was a, the second incarnation of the Central League was a gong show. They went for the fights. That's it. Friday night fights. Yeah. Well, that's, so, that's, a, that's, that's how and where non-traditional hockey got its start. So you, you say the, the, it's a, then the, the player, it's on, if they choose to, to, to play, they the, choose the, to the play risk, your, it's a the risk, risk is inherent in the current game, right. inherent in the game as it's always been. Right. If it's taken out of the game someday, great. That's up to them. Right, but right now, if you decide to play, it's inherent to the. It's like a Monty Python line from uh, from uh, Holy Grail: "Come see the violence inherent in the system." <laughs> Maybe we that, need more clutching and grabbing to slowly play with Damon actually a lot too, because he's like this. We just got to stop isolating things. Because his whole theory of his book is we got to stop isolating these things and acting like oh, there's these lone wolves or. Like this is something yeah. that's in us and it needs to be addressed and managed. It's I not guess. like it's five guys that are, you know, criminals running around the National Hockey League. It's pretty much any night of the week. Look at David Backus. Yeah, you got. You get hit by yeah, JT Miller. JT Miller, yeah. In the Boston Tampa series, it looked harmless. It's just two big bodies colliding. Well, how do you? What are you doing there? Like, are we gonna somehow work, figure out a way to take that out of the league? Good luck. You did say you uh, the season should be shorter, though. I think. Oh, absolutely. But I don't see the owners giving up dates, and I don't see the players giving up that percentage of their... But they'd be they'd be healthier, rested, faster, stronger. Quality of play would be a lot greater if they played less games. Nate, um, let's lighten things up here yeah, with... Yeah. Uh, we, took, we took you down to a heavy path. With, I'm, feeling, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling guilty. With, <laughs> with, with the, the... Actually, part of it is, just to tell you, Simmer, it's... it's we are on... A, we have a specific time window here. That's oh, yeah. why. So we got. Oh, yeah. That's why we're always uh, looking and making sure we got our questions, and we don't want to miss anything. Uh, we might never have you on again. Who knows? <laughs> What's the next book going to be about? Next one's about Middle Eastern politics. Oh, definitely. Oh. Can you tie in a sports angle? Uh, probably not. Ah. But there'll be another kind of one of these potentially down the road. I don't know. Oh, I nice. got enough story. I got enough wacky, weird, like us. Like I didn't touch Australia. I didn't like. There's a lot of crazy stuff. I was there for six months. Did some crazy stuff down there, and other places. But whatever. Um, Someday. Lightning round. Okay. Three questions. This is this is, this is a new thing. Okay. Okay. You obviously, you're a, a native Michigander. Neil and I are from a, born and raised in Ontario. Yep. So for the three of us, what is the significant in a baseball context of October fourth, nineteen eighty seven? Uh, October fourth, nineteen eighty seven. I'm thinking this would be Tigers, Blue Jays. Um, 
Frank Tanana pitched a one nothing shutout, and I, I think um, I think the Tigers were three and a half games back when the week started, and they they won the division. That, that is, ding, ding, that ding, is ding. The man, yes. the man. That was like a Wikipedia entry. That was amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That was a particularly devastating day for me. I know Nate, it must have been for you. No, I, I, yeah. Do you remember who hit the home run for the Tigers? I do not, but I was it like Larry Herndon or it something. It was Larry what Herndon. Like, you know, this guy he second, lights out today. This second guy. inning, and George Bell said he later he, I should have tried to step on that auxiliary scoreboard and tried to, to catch the ball. Out, Before yeah, you continue on lightning round, I just want you to. I mean, did you have a chance to go to the Olympia and Tiger Stadium and just tell us yes. a little bit about both of those I stadiums? To, I went to the Olympia. Was unbelievable. It was an old barn. I don't remember it as well. I did go to one game with my. Next oldest brother. It was like the most penalty minutes in history at that time. It was Boston, Detroit. It was just a took forever. It was a gong show. Uh, just remember it being super cool, like on, right on top of everything, and going as a little little kid seeing Gordy Howe when I was really tiny. And then I used to we used to skip uh, school opening day of the season every single year at Tiger Stadium and go to sit in the bleachers. All right, so uh, another Tiger question, obviously. This is the first of 50-year anniversary of their 1968 World Series championship. You know, before before uh, before any of a, the time of any of us, but 50 years ago today, so May 7th, 1968, who was the Tigers' winning pitcher? And I'll give you a hint. He was a portly portsider, big, big lefty. Probably Denny McLean. Lefty. Or, oh, Mickey Lolich. Mickey Lolich, yes. <laughs> this guy's good. Denny McLean, Mickey Lolich. Um, I, I know that lineup pretty well because we used to go to Tiger Stadium when I was a little kid, and Mickey Stanley was my favorite player, and I uh, I could almost name the whole lineup. <laughs> Willie Horton, Gates Brown, Jim Northrup. Mickey Stanley moved from, short, from the outfield to the shortstop in the World Series. Anyway. And, and, the, <laughs> and the third one we had was because you covered the Bruins. Who was the OHL team that passed on the chance to draft a 16-year-old Joe Thornton number one overall? Oh, God. The OHL team that the failed OHL to draft The OHL team. That he was the number two pick. <laughs> oh, God. That's a, that, that I don't know. I was not re- at all involved in, in following the Ontario Hockey League back then, but it was probably <laughs> like the, the Sioux or something. The Detroit well, Copywear. Uh, what was the Detroit Copywear? We'll no. give credit because he, he, did, he played for the Sioux Greyhounds, but it was the Barry Colts. Barry Colts. That were an expansion right, team, and they were right. like, we'll only get Thornton for two years because he'll go straight to the NHL. So they drafted Dan Kachuk. Wow. Who played 19 career NHL games and is oh, now right. an assistant Did I have, coach. Oh, I said the Sioux. Yeah, I must have had Sioux yeah, lodged in my head because that's where he played. I, I but, say we give credit. Three well, for three. You, you no, didn't no, re- I, didn't, I didn't. That's not Two right. and a half. I, two and a half I just said the Sioux in my head because that's where he played. I wouldn't have guessed that in a million years. You did pretty pretty darn good. At, uh, Thanks, especially buddy. the, uh, where, where where were you watching the 87 uh, final game of the season? Were you there? Here's, here's really funny. I was still a huge Tiger fan. At that time, but I was living in Massachusetts, working up in my summers on Nantucket Island as a tour bus driver See, look at and, this a, guy. and a cab driver. <laughs> and, and we'd take one, once a year trips up to Fenway to see the Tigers come in. And one year they beat Roger Clemens in a game, knocked him out of the game. His shortest stint as a Red Sox knocked him out, and they beat him 13-1. to 1. Chet Lemon hit a home run in the Chet first Lemon. inning. But we went up there for that, sat in the bleachers right dead center field. But at that day, I was working. I was driving a tour bus, and I remember every day we'd read the paper because you read newspapers in '87 to get your updates. And somehow had it on the radio. I don't know. How, it was, I don't know how that worked. But saw that Frank Tanana shut out the. I think so it was, you, didn't, I got, you didn't actually see the game. 
Oh, no, I didn't see the game. No, I was. I remember standing on the straight wharf going, oh, my God, they just came back from three and a half down in a week, and they, I was following the paper every day. Nate, uh, where did you watch that game? I remember I was in my parents. I was 10 years old, so I was in my parents' living room, and I just remember, like, going right right to my room and just, like, throwing myself on the bed and just <laughs> crying my eyes out. Like, Wasn't Doyle Alexander a big part of that somehow? Yeah, he, he beat the Blue... Uh, the on the, next, the, on game the second last Sunday second of the last, season, he, yeah. he, I, think he, I think he helped beat the Jays twice, and he went something right. like 9-0 and with a 1-5-3 ERA. Yeah. After he got picked up from the Braves, that of course the Tigers gave up John Smoltz to do it. So I remember, to get him, so. I remember being in university uh, and interviewing Garth Orge. Wow, who was the last out in that game, and he was a jovial guy. We were in university. He's like, "How do you guys remember that?" Like he, uh, we cared about it. I think probably more than he did. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was a tough day. That and and it was kind of like. I don't know. I, I I was thinking about the other day. It the the sting has been t- was taken out of it five years later when the Jays won the World Series. Had the Jays not won the World Series, that could have been like kind of our Buckner, mo- like yeah, kind of, of not 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 exactly, but in a same. It was a hell of a collapse because yeah. when you're up three and a half with, with seven days left and you lose the division, I, I do remember this. I did find a way to watch the American League Championship Series against Minnesota, hmm. and I. They but got, you boycotted, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I didn't watch they, any of the playoffs that they, year. They got overwhelmed. The Tigers blew their proverbial whatever, beating <laughs> beating Texas or beating Toronto, and then got smoked by Kirby Puckett and the Twins, who went on to win the World Series. That is true. Um, okay, so just a couple uh, final questions here. I just want to. I've been fascinated with Detroit for a while. You know, we've talked about Detroit uh, mm-hmm. searching for. Um, Searching for Sugar Man. Sugar Man, Man yes. Great and, movie. Uh, yeah, and and I've recent I got to go for my first two times to Detroit in the last uh, eight nine months. Um, you 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 were born sixty four. I hope you don't mind me saying yep. saying that. According to Wikipedia, you're born sixty four. Yeah, yeah, Hopefully that's right. Um, how did you see the city change? I mean, how has the city changed? Do you go back? And I also want to ask you about how you become a Canadian. You become a Canadian citizen, correct? I'm a PR, almost a citizen. Okay. Yeah. So tell tell me about Detroit, and then your transition to coming into Canada, kind of being a full time guy here. Well, Canada first. I did have relatives in Ottawa, relatives in Vancouver, relatives in Calgary. So always had a kind of a grew up on the border. Obviously, watched right. hockey night in Canada every week growing up since I was four or five. So that was always kind of part of my right. life. So I've always psychologically, socially, politically been more Canadian than American anyway. So that that's, explains that. Mm-hmm. Um, the city, like I, was, I was too young to really understand white flight, which is what they called yeah. it. As the African-American, the black community moved into Detroit, the white moved out to suburbia. That was just the phenomenon in the late 60s. It right. had, had the riots. Right. All that was lost on me as a kid. Mm. I just you know grew up outside the city, but always loved going in. Mm-hmm. And when we went in, it was too... 95% of the times I went into the city of Detroit, it was either Olympia, Tiger Stadium, or Cobo Arena. Right. Yep. And then in high school, you start to go to concerts downtown. So your attachment to the city is really based on sports, like coming in from the suburbs. Sports and entertainment. Yep. No, um, no doubt about it. And my parents both grew up in the city, so that was kind of interesting. Sorry, Nate, did you? Okay, yes. The, the second thing I wanted, the second last thing I wanted to ask you about was... Um, you talk in this, or you write about in this book, uh, being in Torino in 06. Of course, that's where Sweden uh, beat Finland in the, the gold medal uh, final in hockey, uh, which you were covering. Um, this year, I worked down at the CBC here in Toronto uh, for the Winter Olympics uh, with no NHLers for the first time since uh, I think it was 94. Uh, that's just a long way around of saying they had Alexei Yashin on their panel. Uh, he was um, 
one of the analysts. And I've always wondered, and since you were, you've worked as an analyst and all over this and are still in sports media covering hockey, I find it interesting that we've never really had a European analyst. I mean, somebody, let's say, I'm going to throw out a few names, Daniel Alfredson's to, to yep. Dan Alfredson to whoever, Darius Kasparaitis, somebody that, you know, born over in Europe and, and played at a lengthy Olympic spell in the NHL. Like, I, I, do you have you ever thought about that? Do you do you think that would add a different perspective to the analysis? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I I've never have really thought about it. I mean, it <laughs> so makes maybe sense. maybe we don't need. Well, I just I've always thought, hey, you know, I think it would be. But I've always had an interest in going there and working. Like I've I had a couple right. of European like hockey startup ideas and was over there covering worlds a few times and just dabbling in, you know, getting some gigs, extra gigs over there because I've done some stuff over there. Um, but never looked at it that never flipped it over and thought, why isn't, uh, you know, such and such doing do you think analysis? It, do you think it would matter or do you I, think it would, do you I think? I mean, I don't know. Um, I'll just, I, if it was a world championship or Olympics, for sure, that would be fantastic. But an NHL day to day, I mean, it's like, eh, if the guy's talented and can talk and he's right. loquacious. Funny thing about Alexi Yashin, weird thing about him. I was in the New York zone there for a while. He thinks I'm someone else or something because like, or else he's just an incredibly friendly guy. But Alexi Yashin, for whatever reason, this is like a funny Alexi Yashin quirk. Is he always like wave wildly at me or just like from a distance by the bus? He'd be like, hey! And I'd be like, I, I don't think I'm who you think. Like, I think oh, you think I'm someone else because like, I don't know you. But it went on for like three years. So then I always wave back, hey, hey, hey. So um, this weird Alexi Yashin. One day you're going to like meet face to face and then he's going to... Well, I, that's the thing. I think I we have. Like it's, a, oh. you know, just like walk by and he had like the model wife. Like, yes. You know, uh, Carol. I met her yes. in the press box and at the Islanders one year. Was, she was... With Craig Patrick, right? And then no, and, uh, Ron, Ron, Ron Gresham. Gresham. Ron Gresham. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, um, sorry, where were we? Where were we? Um, yeah. Uh, some, oh, yes. Europeans. Yeah. European analysts. Yeah. yeah. No, I, it was something I, I thought I would, uh, I would, I would run by you. I know uh, when I interviewed uh, Alexei Kovalev uh, for a story about uh, Gabe Polsky made a film about the Russian Red Army teams. Yeah. Uh, you might have seen it, and Kovalev was. You know, he felt like they were misunderstood, the Russians, especially when they came over, and they have a certain unique style of hockey. Now, it might be all melding together now, but I just thought, hey, you know, this is they have a, that's something I'd never heard in media before, you know. I mean, oh, yeah, they so. have a Russian guy or whatever. Um, so. I was around the, the Russian five a little bit. In fact, after they beat Colorado in the Western Conference final, two, three weeks before the, the limo accident, I was sitting at a table at a pub in Birmingham, Michigan, with the entire Red Wings team by accident. Right after the Western Conference Final in the and you just happened to be there with just them. Ha- like yep same area with my buddy from high school and here the whole team starts walking in it was like what the hell so I ended up at a table with all the Russians okay yeah and how like, that with my buddy Steve Birchall uh, Konstantinov would just go hi hi he just keeps saying hi vodka. Hi, vodka. Hi. I think the Russian. You must. There must be a well. doppelganger of you in Russia somewhere. The only word I had to know was vodka, so it worked out great. I like it. Yeah, I was uh, sitting next to Shanahan too. It was really strange. How about Joe Koser? Was he there? Uh, no, I don't know if Joey was. Was he, he there? Was he there? Or? He was on one of those teams. I think. Yeah, he was. Maybe. I'm trying to remember. Um, if he, was, he might have been. Reason I bring him up is I love those guys. Uh, I love Koser and Probert. Could, Probert. 
Uh, that, I mean, let's talk about that for a second because he, a uh, Windsor guy, Detroit connection, probably roughly the same age, roughly. Yeah, yes. I think so. Yeah. Uh, your 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 memories and thoughts about uh, Mr. Bob Probert? I just remember the wildly entertaining late '80s. Yes. Eiserman would score, get a point and a half, two points a game, and Coacher and Probert would beat the crap out of three three people, and we, it was part of our Friday night in college. It was my fourth year of university. And we would make sure to watch the Red Wings beat the crap out of people, and then we'd go out and party. He is Canadian. He just said university instead of college. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so I'm going to get into this last segment with a kind of a bit of a embarrassment on my part. Um, so what we do here is we try to, to give a, a gift to our guest. All right. Um, Where are the keys? Please don't get excited. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, something that may have some meaning to you. Um, so what happened today was, um, could, can you lift up that bag? They're Ooh. very delicately, di- di- like, like, like straight up, yeah. straight, this is up like straight up. Monty Monty yeah. Hall. Let me help. Yeah. Who's Canadian? Yeah. So, so, so listen, nice. we, we this is the problem that we, I I went all over the city to find Tahitian treat. You know how hard it is to find. Don't don't lift it up. Oh, is it it, 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 the it broke. Oh, it my burst. bag my bag is soaked with Tahiti oh, yeah. treat. So I owe wow. you a Tahiti treat. Nice. Uh, and the reason I brought I love that, fruit punch too. That's Tahitian treat fruit fruit punch. It's there. If you go online and Google that, it is hard to find cans oh, really? of that. How so, did you explode it? Uh, shook it? All the equipment in my bag punctured it. Oh. So, and I know you're probably expecting way more than that. Um, <laughs> um, no, that's fine. But what I also wanted to do was um, I wanted to share with you this. Uh, let me hang on here. Okay. Is there audio? Is there dancing girls? No. Oh. I want you to. I want you to have that. And Ooh. what that is. Eddie Aikau. I know Eddie well. Okay. So Eddie, Eddie would have gone. That's what people are worth. So, Eddie would go. Right. So what I just handed uh, to Rob there is um, is a long-form journalistic uh, piece nice. or journalism piece by Nicole Pasulka, which is in the best of American sports writing, which is one of the influences for this show that we do. Yep. Um, and it's about Eddie Aikau. Yep. Um, so... In your words, quickly, just tell tell the viewers or the listeners who Eddie Aikau was. Eddie Aikau is a guy who um, was a North Shore legend, big wave rider, and um, there was a huge, uh, this is just the short note version of it, basically there's a t-shirts over the years, Eddie would go, and they have a huge wave riding contest called the Eddie, and it's named after him. He went out in these waves to save a life and drowned trying to save someone else and therefore became a surfing legend. This is kind of the long story short. And it's very emotional because Hawaii is a very spiritual, non, non-religious spiritual right. place with the water, the aina, which is the land, right, um, and all that. And it was, even for a Haole boy like me, it was very, uh, very powerful. And Eddie is just one of those uh, legends that makes up that life a howley is a is a white, white guy. guy that yes yeah. um and and eddie also was a he was a champion of cultural revival in in hawaii and there was yeah. a uh, a lot of people don't really know the story of the colonization yeah. of hawaii the dole family family i believe the dole family um yeah. and um yeah the u.s government overthrew hawaii in 1893 they imprisoned the queen it's in the it's in right. my book. I write two or three chapters about Hawaii in my book, and some of it's about the fact that you know we stole Hawaii from the Hawaiians. So what I'm going to do, I found that really um, awesome that you did include that part. So a lot of people gloss over that. Yeah. Not many people know it. That whole long form piece includes that. Oh, cool. Uh, 
Now, what I what I want to do then is I'm going to read a little bit from that long form piece, and then I want you to read from your book. Okay. So uh, I'll start, and I'll point at you. Sorry. All right. And from, from the green, green to the green. green. Are yes. You're going first. Yes. All right. So this is from uh, the piece I just mentioned. So hopefully this Howley boy feels the same way as the. Uh... <laughs> well, this is a this is a, a lady, Nicole Pasulka. Um, and she um, she basically said at the end of this piece on Eddie Icau, yep. tours and guidebooks tend to present admirable historical figures as statues, static, immobile, their good deeds and bravery, things of the past. Visitors sit on the bus or the beach admiring these surfers, but they often miss the real message, the messy, sometimes depressing story of conflict that defines the place they've gone for an exotic escape. Tourists don't need to adopt local customs to honor the history of their destination, but they do need to make an effort to learn about them. Yes. Uh, well, this was from my first chapter of a two-part story called Dumbass Howley Boy. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I left Hawaii for a set of new gigs on the mainland in January 1996, I cried like a baby. I couldn't help it. As my wife backed out of our driveway on 12th Avenue in Kaimuki, the lump in my throat grew to the size of a grapefruit. I tried to be a tough guy in front of her on the ride to the airport, but it was impossible. I teared up intermittently from the time I left the apartment until my flight was 30 minutes out of Honolulu. I was Kama Aina. I was one with the Aina. I knew, understood, and grasped the Aloha spirit. The memories I had, the acquaintances and friendships I had made, and the life experiences gained thanks to residing on the most isolated island chain in the world were irreplaceable. Among the many valuable lessons... I learned what it's like to be a minority, to feel what it's like to be disliked, hated in some cases, discriminated against, and ignored simply because of the color of my skin. In Hawaii, whites, or haoles, are a distinct minority. They're disliked for a reason, dating back to 1893 when the United States imprisoned Queen Lilikuilani in her own palace and stole the islands. I had moments of being discriminated against, and I get it. Tie in the historical equation, and it's even easier to get. Unfortunately, non-locally raised white guys normally don't. It takes time, education, and growth to understand what makes the locals tick. Elsewhere, white guys are typically the ones doing the discriminating. They're rarely in a position to be treated as a minority, and they generally don't get a chance to learn that lesson. Over time, I did come to feel welcome, partly because I was on TV. I would eventually become an anchor, first as a weatherman and then as a sports guy. This kind of visibility brought acceptance in this tough, athletic, patriarchal society. Had I been a stockbroker or a government worker or any other business from the mainland USA, it would have been dramatically tougher to break through and embrace the true spiritual flavor and tradition of Hawaii. I think what I think is great about that is it would have been very easy for you to just go there and be like, I'm American, this is America, boom. Like, But it takes effort and work to get beyond, oh, yeah. you know, beyond that, I think. So I thought that was, a, that was a, very, a very powerful part of the book. Thank you. I, I, something I'll never not appreciate is that, that, that whole thing right there. Uh, well, yeah, again, uh, a very interesting history of Hawaii. And for anyone out there, please uh, also read the long-form piece I just uh, gave to Rob. I'm very sorry about the Tahiti treat. I was very <laughs> excited. You don't understand how... That's, like, I appreciate the effort, too, because it looks delicious. And there's palm trees and there's a sun. It's, it's fantastic. Trust yeah. me, you cannot get Tahiti, Tahitian treat Tahitian in this treat. city. Um, Good effort. Anyway, um, you know, Rob, uh, that's... That's uh, that's all for us. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add uh, before uh, we uh, 
part ways. Well, first of all, I very much appreciate you letting me read that that track because that's a beautiful part of the book, um, talking about that experience. And I do, there is a chapter in here later about going to the forbidden yes. island of Ni'ihau, which is a and, totally different world. Um, but no, um, just uh, again, if you want to uh, travel around the world in, in antidotal fashion and not take things too serious, oh, there's a couple serious moments. A guy gets taken hostage. <laughs> That's true. Food. We didn't even get into uh, that. We didn't yeah. even get into that. But um, yeah, no, have fun. Check it out. That's what it's really all about is uh, life experience, as you just pointed out, and um, making the most of your opportunities outside of the business. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, gentlemen.